Good morning. Let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We know that each one of us comes to you individually, and we each have our own personal relationship with you. But you also have us come together as a family so that we can learn and see just how you can touch each one of us differently and magnificently. So Lord, as we're here together today, let our minds be open and our hearts be willing to hear and, and bring, take, bring in the message that we, that we uh, receive today. This we ask in your son Jesus' name, amen. Well, we want to thank Mike coming today and will be bringing us our message. Yes, on April 10th, we are having a memorial for, for Brad Hagelin. Um, two in the afternoon, I believe. Our Easter service, we're just going to have the one, but instead of having one at 6.30 outdoors and then at 9.30, we're going to have one outdoors at, on, in the Garden Chapel at 8 o'clock. All right, let's worship our Lord. Good morning, everybody. And as we just mentioned uh, about Brad Hagelin, who was called to go home with the Lord, um, he kind of jumped out at me as I, um, not figuratively, but um, when I went to go through the morning's devotion, to watch Brad grow in his heart toward God, um, it was really great to see him shine. And he had a heart that had physical issues that took his life in what we consider early. But God has a plan, God will do it. And the reflection of his heart and God's heart is kind of how I want to tie this in together, because um, how God was able to use, use Brad and to use each one of us. God's great heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Divine love, like a reflected sunbeam, shines down before it shines out. And unless your hearts are conditioned by the Holy Spirit to receive and reflect the warmth of God's compassion, we cannot love others as we ought. Jesus wept tears of compassion at the graveside of a friend. He mourned over Jerusalem because the people had lost their sensitivity to God and to his word. His great heart was always sensitive to the needs of others. When challenged to state the most important commandment, he replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' love was more, human, more than human compassion. However, it was filled with the fullest of his divine love in the human flesh. And this is the kind of love that he calls us to have and the kind that he calls us to give back as we seek it from him. And our hope for today, only through the Holy Spirit can we truly weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Ask God to help you and take that flesh out of the equation and to love as God loves. If you'd like to stand and join us, how majestic is your name? Oh, it's so great to see all of you. What a
majestic is your name in all of the earth. O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. O oh Lord, we praise your name. O oh Lord, we magnify your name. Yeah. 
Testament scripture today comes from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them is a husband loves a wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel on that, on that day, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write on their hearts, I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, says the Lord, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. And if you'd like to stand as we say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever.
Our New Testament reading today comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verses 5 through 10. That is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest. No, he was chosen by God who said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And in another passage, God said to him, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. <laughs> While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the, to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though God, Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And, and God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We now have a responsive reading. God of compassion, you know our faults, and yet you promise to forgive. Keep us in your presence and give us your wisdom. Open our hearts to gladness. Call dry bones to dance. Restore to us joy of your salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, the gifts we give today, we know we're just returning them to you. So as we, as we give those gifts, we ask you to use the wisdom that you, that you show us, that we may use those, these gifts wisely, that they may use to be further your kingdom, and that others may come to know and love, love you as we have, have, we, have, we have known have come to do so. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Morning, church. It's good to be back here. Thank you guys so much for uh, just your hospitality, opening me, uh, opening up your house so I could come in here and, uh, and just be a part of, of this family and to worship with you today. Um, I love the authenticity that I see in your worship. I love the, un the authenticity that I see in this family here. You know each other's names. You pray for each other. Uh, it's such a connected uh, body here, and it's a beautiful thing to see. Uh, so, again, uh, I thank you for uh, allowing me to come on up and deliver a message this morning. Uh, would you pray for me? Or <laughs> pray for me. Pray with me. A little bit of both, I guess. Uh, Father God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this body. God, thank you for this opportunity uh, to come here and be able to speak about the glorious work of your Son. God, I pray that throughout this sermon and afterwards, God, that there would be nothing memorable of me here. God, I must decrease. You must increase in this place. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lead us this morning with a message uh, that would glorify and magnify your son. I pray that you would lead today with a message that would edify and grow uh, this church in their knowledge of you uh, and their appreciation and their love for you, God, and that you would use all of this uh, to encourage us, um, to strengthen uh, our love for you, our joy, um, and just being part of your creation and uh, being known by you. And let us rest comfortably in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. 
All right, Frank preached last week on why the cross was necessary. And he asked me to come in uh, today and kind of continue on with that thought of why is uh, what was accomplished on the cross. That's a pretty lofty topic. You could go two ways with that. That could be a five-word answer or that could be a, a five-week uh, sermon. Uh, this will be somewhere <laughs> in, in between the two. Um, yeah, God's, God's nature is it's complex. It's multifaceted. Um, it is simultaneously perfect love and perfect justice. And it's because of his just nature that the sin of man could not simply just be forgiven. Um, to do so would violate God's very nature. We see this in Proverbs 17. He who justifies the wicked and who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Jesus' death at Golgotha was not merely another stepping stone in God's plan. It was not just another mile post along the side of the road. In fact, it was the final destination. The cross of Christ was the ultimate active event that brought with it a decisive conclusion. Jesus tells us as much in the Gospel of John, John 19. After this, knowing that all was now finished, said uh, to fill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on the hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The final words that we read here uh, are in English. It is finished. Uh, the actual words that would have came from Jesus' mouth more than likely would have been Aramaic. But Aramaic was somewhat of a local language. Um, Greek was a language that was quickly becoming the universal, cosmopolitan, international language of the day. So when the apostles of Jesus, eyewitnesses to his life, his death, his resurrection, when they chose to preserve his words in writing, they did so in a language that would be the best understood by the greatest amount of people. They chose Greek. The word chosen here by John to record Jesus' last statement, it is finished, in the Greek is tetalestai. It comes from this root word teleo, of, uh, which means to bring a close, to finish, to end, to perform, execute, complete, or fulfill. So quite literally, it means to finish something, to complete, to fulfill. But John didn't, John didn't write down the word teleo, he used tetalestai which is taking that word and it's conjugating, uh, conjugating it in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense is a past tense. It speaks of an action that has already happened, but that past action is regarding as still existing. In other words, uh, it describes an action being completed in the past once and for all, not needing to be repeated. So what was it that Jesus conclusively finished on the cross of Christ, and what is it, is it that was finished that remains finished to this day? Well, that's where this gets a little complex. Um, uh, when, I, when I was looking through this, I saw four different ways to go, uh, go about this. Uh, we see what was finished, we see God's wrath was finished in an act called propitiation. We are made acceptable to God in an act called justification. Satan, our accuser, was disarmed of his greatest weapon against us. The separation between God and his people was removed. All of this was completed on the cross and still is finished to this day. And why are these important to us? 
because these are the conditions necessary for us to have a restored and re renewed relationship with God the Father. Today, God willing, <laughs> we're going to unpack these four accomplishments. Uh, so, number one, what was finished on the cross? Propitiation. Uh, for most of mankind's existence, God has been requiring his people to perform animal sacrifices as payment for their sins. The shedding of animal blood was instituted by God uh, to Aaron and his sons, Israel's first priests, as God was guiding them through the desert outside of Egypt. Uh, and this is detailed in the book of Leviticus. But these sacrifices, however, are not permanent. They are temporary at best and must be performed repeatedly. By Jesus' time, Israel has been conducting these, these uh, recurring animal sacrifices for over 500 years. But how is it that animal sacrifices are somehow effective at answering for the sins that man commits? The author of the book of Hebrews comes out and directly addresses this when he says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, the ceremonial sacrifices that Israel had been partaking in for over half a millennia, they were not effective in themselves. They were symbolic. They were the stepping stones. They were the mileposts. They were pointing forwards to this future event, to this ultimate perfect sacrifice that would completely, once and for all, absolve Israel of their sins. But still, this puts some pieces together, but it doesn't really answer the question of why does God require blood in response to sins? This is one of the questions that I really struggled with before I put my faith in God. I just couldn't understand how, how does the math work. When I, create, when I do evil, when I do a sin against God, how is an animal or something else taking a penalty for me, somehow atoning for what I've done? The Apostle Paul makes this connection. <clears throat> uh, sorry, the Apostle John uh, in 1 John 4, he says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. According to Strong's Concordance, propitiation, it, uh, it relates to an appeasing uh, or an expiating. Uh, I like Merriam-Webster's uh, Webster, dictionary definition, to e extinguish the guilt incurred by so if we take these definitions in mind and we look back at this verse, it, one, could, uh, one could understand it as saying, God sent his son to appease and extinguish the guilt incurred by, by our sins. So Jesus' death on the cross was a means of fully appeasing, fully satisfying God's need to bring justice to those who have sinned against him. Okay, <laughs> so that makes a little bit of sense, but... Still, I, I, there's the problem of how do you connect these? And again, this is what I really struggled with before coming to Christ. I committed those crimes against God. We all have. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So doesn't that mean that I, that we, should have to answer for them? After all, look what the prophet Nahum writes about God. It says, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not acquit to 
the wicked. So how are we to make sense of this apparent contradiction? How is Jesus' death on the cross able to extinguish God's justice towards me, towards you? How is he able to be our propitiation when God says that he will not acquit the wicked? So that's where the plot twist comes in here. Because of God's abundant love for us, Jesus took our place. And uh, the doctrinal term for this is substitutionary atonement. You see, we were called to live in accordance with God's will and God's law, but we have failed. Jesus, however, succeeded. He lived the perfect righteous life that we were called to live. But rather than stand up on some pedestal and claim his reward like the winners of the Olympics do, instead he took our punishment. And I think I've got a slide. There you go. It's an illustration of it right there. He had every right to go uh, from his righteous life to stand up upon that victory pedestal. But instead, he stands in our place. Jesus stepping into our place and taking upon him the burden of our sin, it's detailed remarkably, in remarkably uh, vivid detail by the prophet Isaiah. Uh, we don't have time to go through the whole chapter, but we will take a look at a few short verses. Isaiah 53. Yet it was, uh, oops, excuse me, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So yes, I, I have sinned. We have fallen short. Jesus did not, and he stands in our place. Our iniquities were put on him. So while the ESV uh, says that it was the will of the Lord, uh, the original Hebrew word that was used, used here is chafetz, which means to delight in to take pleasure in, to desire, to be pleased with. I like the way the King James captures this when it says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. So, <laughs> what are we to make of this? How is our God, who is love, how can he be pleased by this? Well, we know that God is not a sadist, that he does not take pleasure in people suffering. So a better way to understand this the correct way, in my estimation, is that Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf satisfied the, uh, God the Father's need for justice. So what was finished on the cross? God's wrath in an act called propitiation. For those in Christ Jesus, God's requirement against lawbreakers has been fully satisfied, fully exhausted. His wrath is put away forever and we are made justified. Amen? So I ask you, brothers and sisters, do you live your life every day knowing that God's wrath towards your sin has been fully extinguished? Is this an everyday totalistic reality for you? As Ray Comfort says, uh, God has given us the moral law. We broke the law. Jesus paid our fine. Jesus took upon himself the full measure of God's justice against law-breaking men and paid it in full. 
and the payment satisfied the debt that we owe to God for breaking his law. We are made justified in God's sight. The Apostle Paul lays this out cleanly in 2 Corinthians when he wrote, for our sake, here we, oh, we go backwards. All right. Um, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might be made the righteousness of, of God. In this verse, we see this concept of double imputation. It's a two-way transaction. See, on one side of the transaction, Jesus took our sin on himself, effectively becoming our sin and removing the burden from us. And on the other side of the ledger, he transferred through our faith in him his righteousness to us. He didn't just wipe our slate clean. He clothed us in his righteousness. You see, and this is also, as a side note, this is why Jesus can, can claim exclusivity. Um, when he says uh, that I am the way, I am the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except for me. He's able to justify, to make that claim, because he alone is the source of our propitiation. He alone is the source of our righteousness. No other path, no other worldview, no other philosophy can offer that. So what else was finished on the cross? we were made justified. The record of our sins paid for by another and a perfect righteousness earned by another has been transferred to us. But still, that's not all that happened on the cross. Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive, God made alive together with him having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, with our guilt being removed, the penalty paid for in full by Jesus, Satan, the accuser, and his demons, they're deprived of their greatest weapon against us, their knowledge of our sin. The accuser can no longer stand and point and accuse us of violating God's laws. He can no longer use our guilt as leverage to extort or to blackmail us. Uh, Pastor Glenn Elliott, I remember, said this years ago. This is uh, one of the first sermons that I remember attending of his after I came to Christ. He said, Satan knows your name but he calls you by your sin. That's his weapon against us. But with Jesus as accomplished on, his cro on the cross through our justification, the other side of that is Jesus knows our sin, but he calls us by our name. Satan knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. Jesus knows your name. No, Jesus knows your sin, but he calls you by your name. So I ask you, brothers and sisters, is this a reality for you? And every day, to die, it is finished reality. Do you still have that voice that, that nags at you and bugs you for the things that you have done in the past? Or do you know that this is also put away, nailed to the cross? So we've covered a lot of ground here. Today, but there's still one more area of what was accomplished on the cross. 
that I'm hoping that we can plumb this topic. Um, and it's a big one. I hope and pray you guys are all with me <laughs> still at this point uh, and that you're hungry for more of God's good news. So what else was finished on the cross? The separation between God and his people. Mark 15. <clears throat> and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So this is from like noon to three, middle of the day in, in the Middle East where it should have been hot and sunny. There was darkness over the whole land. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry. I think that was probably Tetalistai at that point. Um, and he breathed his last. And this is where the good news comes in. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way, uh, saw that in uh, this way he breathed his last and said, truly this man was the son of God. So what happened on the cross? God's wrath was put away. We were justified. And immediately after, this veil in the temple was torn. For us to really understand the significance of this veil and what this means, we're going to have to unpack this a little bit. We're going to have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, go to Genesis 3. So this is right, <clears throat> right after, uh, this is the scene where Adam and Eve eat of the tree. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The events in this scene are of just earth moving importance in terms of human history. They also provide keen insight into our condition as well. So let's take a look at what we see occurring here. We see that the knowledge of sin causes shame. See this in verse 7a. We see that the reaction of this knowledge of sin is an attempt to fix it themselves. And ultimately we see the shame of sin that causes a separation between man and God. And these are reactions that we as Adam and Eve's descendants we also share. Our sin causes us to move away from God and to pursue our own view of what is right and wrong, or in biblical terms, clean and unclean. And what was God's response to this? Well, we see that a few verses later in the chapter, verse 23. 
Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and the rest of the Garden of Eden he placed, uh, and at the east, excuse me, the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God's response to sin was to remove them from Eden, where they had a close physical relationship with God. He even sets a class of angel, a cherubim, and a flaming sword at the gates to guard against man trying to regain access to God's presence in the garden. Again, we see sin causes a separation between us and God, both a spiritual separation and a physical separation. One way that we see the separation, the physical separation manifested in the Bible is from this veil, the veil of the tabernacle and later on in the temple. So now we fast forward in time to when God is leading Israel through the desert. He gives Moses very specific design specifications on how to build this portable tent, how to build the Ark of the Covenant, and all of the features around it. And the area of the tent where the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to rest, God gives very specific instructions to make a veil. This area must be kept separated from the rest of the tent. In Exodus 26, we read, And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on the four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, and on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the must holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. So we see man's sin causing the separation between man and God. Man must leave God's presence, and God puts two cherubim in, in the place to guard him from coming back. And we see when God represents this in the tabernacle, we see one area where God's presence is supposed to be uh, resting on top of the ark. And guarding that from the rest of the temple, we see the veil with two cherubim emblazoned on it. Now, when I think of veils, I tend to think of a, a thin, sheer covering, uh, like what some brides choose to wear during their wedding. But that's nothing uh, like the veil of the tabernacle. Uh, according to 1 Kings 19, it would have covered an area of 20 cubits by 20 cubits. A cubit's 18 inches. So this is a giant 30 foot by 30 foot woven curtain covered in exquisitely made decorations that depicted heaven. Its purpose was to be a physical barrier from Israel, even the high priests from being able to get access to or even see this most holy place with the Ark of the Covenant. The only exception to this was one day a year when the high priest um, could, on the Day of Atonement, uh, he could enter behind the veil, but even that was after rounds of, of uh, ritual purification and being clothed in special clean clothes. So why was this separation necessary? R.C. Sproul once said, uh, said that only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Now, holy can be a difficult word for us. 
Merriam-Webster defines it as exalted or worthy of complete devotion as one perfect in goodness and righteousness. This is true, but even then, this definition really doesn't do justice to the meaning of the word. God is holy to the third power. He is holy to the fullness of the word, and we are not. And this causes a gap between us and God that proves deadly for us. Uh, We see in Habakkuk that God is not even able to look upon unholiness. When he says, you are, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. If unholiness would somehow end up in God's presence, it would prove deadly. We see examples of this in multiple places in Scripture. Exodus 33, when Moses is asking God to show, show Moses his glory, God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Uh, in Leviticus, uh, when God is speaking to Moses about Aaron, um, the high priest, he says, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. And we see this again in Numbers 18, um, when God is instructing to Aaron and his sons, you and your sons shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and what is within the veil. He later says, any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. So the veil was put in place to protect sinful and unclean humanity from being vaporized in the presence of a thrice holy God. So now that we've discussed the necessity of the veil, it's time for the good news. Jesus' triumph on the cross brings this need for separation to an end as well. We see this in an event that immediately happened, Jesus' death on the cross, the tearing of the veil in two. So what does it mean for it to be torn in two places, or in two? Daniel Gertner, professor, uh, professor of New Testament theology at Southern Seminary, had this to say in his work, the veil was torn in two. Yeah, I'll skip right to the underlying parts. This means that there is no longer a physical barrier to God, suggesting that the theological necessity of it is thereby removed. I love the next part, too. The angelic guardians are disarmed, and re-entry into the Edenic presence of God is again permitted for the first time since the fall. See, Jesus' death on the cross was a propitiation for our sins, and it was accepted by God. How can we be sure it was accepted? Because immediately after Jesus exclaimed, it is finished, God the Father proceeded to tear down the barrier that he put in place to keep sinful and unclean people from being consumed in his holy presence. The separation between man and God that started in the Garden of Eden has been put away through the life and the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Messiah. For once and for all, it is done. Uh, R.C. Sproul illustrates much of what we've talked about today. The double imputation of justification, the removal of Satan's ability to charge us and accuse us of being unrighteousness or unrighteous, and our ability to re-enter into God's presence. Uh, he illustrates this in a children's book that he wrote titled, The Priest with Dirty Clothes. 
Uh, it's meant to be an illustration of Zechariah 3. And I'd like to share a part of it with you this morning. Uh, there are four main characters throughout this. We have Jonathan, who represents us. We have king, uh, the king that represents God the Father. We have the prince, the son of the king, who represents Jesus. And we have the court magician, Malice, who represents Satan. See, Jonathan in the story is a new priest, and he is given clean clothes, and he is told to go give his first sermon before the king. But on his way there, he gets trapped out in the rain, and he falls into a puddle. He gets his clothes completely coated in mud. And he knows that he cannot go into the king's court. He cannot address the king wearing these dirty clothes. So he tries everything that he can to get them clean himself. But he can't. He goes and he sees a tanner asking the tanner. The tanner can't clean them. He goes to ask uh, the other rest of the people in his priestly class if he can have new clothes. Can't have new clothes. So the only thing that he can do is he seeks help from the prince. And here's where the story picks up. So at this point, uh, Jonathan, still wearing his dirty clothes, is approaching the king to give a sermon. But just as soon as Jonathan took his position, Malice, remember who represents our accuser, Satan, stood up and shouted, may bad things happen to you, O priest. You are still wearing dirty clothes. The king, God the Father, looked at Jonathan and frowned. Why are you here again with dirty clothes? The king asked. I told you that you could not stand in front of me looking like that. Jonathan felt ashamed. His face turned red. He couldn't even answer the king. The people began to whisper. Some shouted loudly, go away. But at that moment, someone came into the room. It was a man dressed in scratchy brown robes. The man was carrying a present under his arms. At first, no one recognized the stranger. Then someone shouted, it's the prince. Malice didn't know what to think. He asked, what is the meaning of this? Why are you here? And why are you wearing that itchy robe? The prince did not answer. See, he was smiling as he walked to the front of the room and stood next to Jonathan. Then the prince handed Jonathan the present and told him to open it. Everyone watched Jonathan as he clearly, uh, carefully opened the gift the prince had given to him. Jonathan's eyes grew wide when he saw what it was. It was the perfect present. Inside were the beautiful clothes that belonged to the prince. The prince smiled at Jonathan and said, These are the clean clothes that I promised you. They are yours forever. They will never wear out. There is not a spot of dirt on them, and nothing can make them dirty. They are perfect for you. Then the prince said to Jonathan, Take off your dirty clothes and give them to me. Jonathan took off his dirty clothes and gave them to the prince. And the prince put them on himself. Next, the prince said, put on my clothes and preach your sermon. Jonathan's hands trembled as he put on the prince's beautiful clothes. When Jonathan was dressed, the prince said to the king, Father, may Jonathan now stand in your presence. He is one of my people. The king was pleased. He said to the prince, yes, my son, as long as he wears your clothes, he may stand in front of me. Jonathan was filled with joy. How can I ever thank you for being so kind to me, he asked the prince. The prince said, if you are really thankful, if you really want to show that you love me, then keep all of the commandments I gave you. Oh, I will, Jonathan said. I want to be good enough to wear your clothes. But you cannot be good enough, Jonathan. 
you must live your whole life trusting in my goodness while you wear my clothes. On that day, Jonathan preached his best sermon ever, and he spent the rest of his life preaching about the great prince. He wore the prince's perfect present until the day that he died. So what was accomplished on the cross? Our guilt over sin, it's done, it's finished. Our questioning if we are good enough to be acceptable by God, it's finished. The main weapon that the accuser uses against us, it is finished. And our separation from God, it too is finished. Preach, uh, Frank preached last week on why the cross was necessary. And I hope uh, that throughout today we were able to go through and illustrate what happened on the cross, what was accomplished. Not just in the past, not just the teleo form, but the tetalis day. It's still in place right now. It's still a reality for every single one of us. And it will be for every day going into the future. Thank you, guys. Would you pray with me? Father God, you are good. You are glorious. You are holy. You are high. You are mighty. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your righteousness. Thank you for the amazing gift that we have in your son, Jesus. Thank you for your life, your, your death, your resurrection, Jesus. Thank you for the righteousness that we have in you. Thank you that we are able to enter confidently into the Father's presence. Not because of our works, Jesus, but by yours. We love you. We thank you. We honor you. And until that day where we can see you face to face, we just ask that you would use your, your Holy Spirit to sanctify us more and more every day. Make us more in your image. Let us honor you with everything that we do, with every word that we say, with every inside thought. Amen. And uh, that final clo closing benediction that uh, speaks to what we talked about today. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed of pure water. Amen. Thank you all. Jesus loves me, this I know
us pray. Heavenly Father, we take these words you've taught us today, that it is finished, but why it was finished, how it was finished, and all the things that, it, that by, by your son giving of his life, how we were forgiven forever for sin. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. This we do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.